Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to see you and be together today. Um, if you would grab your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy 4, that's where we'll be. And uh, any parents who would like to go to some age-specific teaching now, not you parents, but your children, said that backwards, you're welcome to go too, I guess. Uh, that's offered if you would like to use that, and of course, fine to stay here um, as well. Real quick, um, a, a reminder that on the back of your bulletin, there's a list of all the uh, upcoming things. So this is an especially full season with many things happening. You heard that from Tad's announcement earlier today. And uh, yesterday I sent an email to you. So if you're a church member, you're, you got an email in your inbox with some things that are coming up. I messed up and put one of the, I put a wrong date for the members meeting. So um, I am very fallible and I apologize. I got corrected by a staff member, so that was wonderful. But check that um, and just uh, do maybe go a little bit extra, a little bit extra effort in trying to keep yourself aware uh, this is an important season for us. Uh, we're in a passage this morning that frankly um, is intense uh, from beginning to end. And uh, it's heavy. This will be a... Um, this will be a more confrontational kind of passage, and yet these are designed by God for our good. These are warnings that we who are in Christ might remain, and that we who are not, but may think that we are, would be invited in. And so our prayer for you this morning is, in whatever situation you're in, that this ultimately would be an encouragement to you. The world we inhabit overflows with a devious doctrines, erroneous spiritual counsel, and godless philosophies, all masquerading as truth. While the restraining common grace of God prevents the world from being as bad as it could be, it is a mess nonetheless. Yet what's far more troubling is that it's not uncommon for churches to also overflow with spiritual nonsense too. And before we point a concerning finger at the world, we ought to turn that finger around and see if it should point at us. God has commissioned His church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. But sadly, many neglect the very reason they exist. Beloved, we're not there now as a church, but we could wind up there. We could simply not only misinterpret a passage, but so twist and align many texts that we come off the rails and deny the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is no healthy church today that could not wind up there in the future through thousands of tiny, terrible decisions. From where do these kind of damning doctrines come from? How do we avoid adopting them? What should we think about people who give the appearance of godliness 
And yet what they're actually teaching contains very serious errors about God. These are the sorts of questions that the beginning of 1 Timothy 4 addresses, in which Paul is going to go back to what he began in chapter 1, resume a topic of false teaching, and address it head on. If you don't have a Bible underneath the chairs in front of you, you'll find a blue Bible, and you can turn to page 576 so that you can see this for yourself. Last Sunday, we were encouraged by the end of chapter 3 with a scandalous reality that a church of godly people demonstrates the reality of God's gospel, that as we live out the truths of who God is and what God says, as we labor in grace together, seeking to love God and one another, we display something different than what would naturally be in us. We don't naturally love God and love each other. No one does. And so if anyone begins to consistently live that way, it's because God's done a new work in their lives, a miracle of regeneration. And as He brings us together and we labor with each other, then we can happily show that God's transforming us in Christ. There are so many evidences of that as I look at your faces and consider the way in which you serve each other so faithfully. A church of godly people demonstrates the reality of God's gospel. But as we turn to chapter 4, we find a passage that says the exact opposite thing can also happen. Even in places where people say, I'm a Christian. I think the way to see the contrast best is if we read the verses from last week and then also go into and read the verses from today. So look with me at the end of chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. It says this. As for you, brothers, that's Second Thessalonians. I've had horrible allergies the last several weeks, and so I keep using cough drops, and when I read, the sugary spit gets on my pages, and then they stick together. <laughs> Just so you know. First Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now for today. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, 
And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy or set apart or dedicated to Him by the Word of God and prayer. These incredibly timely words give us first a sobering fact. That is the first part of verse 1. Then they give us what should be an unsurprising reason in the rest of verse 1 and through part of verse 3. And then finally, it gives us a supernatural solution that I hope to commend to you today. That will be our outline for this morning. Let's consider first a sobering fact. Brothers and sisters, some who say, I follow Jesus, will later reveal they never in fact actually did. The Holy Spirit says that in this era of time between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus in the second coming, those are the latter days or the last days, that in this era of time we live in, some who looked like, acted like, talked like, smelled like, genuine Christians will walk away. The theological term for this you may have heard of is called apostasy. It comes from the word depart in this passage. While apostates may still claim to love God, they deny, today we use the word deconstruct, some of the central teachings of the Bible. Truths such as Jesus is both divine and human. God is sovereign and good. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The pursuit of holy living does not save, but it must be present in those who are saved. If any of those kinds of teachings are doggedly rejected, then one has deserted God, whether they say, I love God, or not. Now, to be clear, when Paul's talking about this in verse 1, he's not ha- he does not have in his mind secondary supporting doctrines, things about which Genuine Christians have reached different conclusions. Things like the timing of baptism. We believe strongly here as a church in believers' baptism. That is, baptism is only baptism after one has confessed Christ. And yet, we wouldn't tell our brothers and sisters in Presbyterian churches, for example, who baptize babies, that they are not Christians. Because baptism doesn't save you. This is not a central truth related to Orthodox Christianity. But it is important nonetheless. Paul doesn't have in his mind those kinds of things. He's talking about the core, the center, the heart of Christianity. Things related to the doctrine of salvation itself and the character and work of God. That's what he means when he says in verse 4 that they depart from the faith. Church, some who 
desert biblical Christianity and stay with that desertion will show they never, rebe- they never believed at all. Some will do that, not may do that. You might. I might. We might. Now, there are other passages in the New Testament we could cross-reference to make sure this isn't a one-off, but we don't need that because sorrowfully, if you've been a Christian a while, you already know this to be true. With pain, you've seen it with your own eyes. You can put names and faces to verse 1. And while this apostasy is incredibly sad, it shouldn't be surprising. Because Jesus predicted it in places like Matthew 24. Paul warned this very church, the Ephesian church, of it. In Acts 20, the Spirit says it here in 1 Timothy 4. So while it's sad and while it's sobering, it's not surprising. But why and how does this happen? What's the reason? If we understand the reason, we'll be far more likely to be protected from it happening to us and to serve each other well by helping to protect each other from this terrible outcome. The language of the passage is is unambiguous. How and why do some forsake the Christ they once proclaimed? The second half of verse 1 is worth reading again. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a mouthful. There's a lot to weigh here. And I assume that some of it is stark and striking and maybe a little scary to you. Verses 1 and 2 tell us how and why apostasy occurs. And then verse 3 goes on to give a particular example of how that was happening in Ephesus. And how it was happening in Ephesus, or what the content of the specific false teaching was, is not one today that many of us would be exposed to or enticed by. We have others. And if there's time, I'll give you some of those. But let's think first about the why and how. On the surface, it's rather straightforward, isn't it? Some teachers and pastors begin teaching wrongly. They say things that some of it's true, some of it's exactly spot on, actually, but some of it's not. Some of it sounds like it might be true, but it's wrong. And so, while with Bible in hand and warm smile on face, and lying on their lips. They distort and malign God's Word. Again, not completely, of course, 
but enough that what they proclaim as the gospel is a false gospel. It's not merely a different take on a text, but a deliberate twisting and distorting of God's Word. A twisting that's so severe, it's a false gospel and distinctly non-Christian. And sadly, some hear this teaching and are eventually persuaded and full-scale walk away from orthodox biblical Christianity. On the surface, that's, that's what Paul says happens. However, Paul also looks beneath the surface. Or you might say he pops the hood and he looks inside to where the real problem lies. He guides us to the underlying spiritual cause of apostasy. Church on Mill, people abandon the faith because they give themselves to demons and demonic teaching. Now, that sounds jarring, especially to those of us in the room from the Western side of the world. Those who are from the eastern side of the world are not as jarred by this, and we would do well to listen to these brothers and sisters. The ultimate source of false teaching, the passage is telling us, is satanic in nature. It's Satan and his demons. One particularly helpful commentator I read this week described it this way, and perhaps this would help. We tend not to take this fact sufficiently seriously. Scripture portrays the devil not only as the tempter, enticing people to sin, but also as the deceiver, seducing people into error. Often he does both together. As when in the Garden of Eden, he persuaded our first parents to doubt and then to disobey God's Word. No wonder Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. That is spot on. But it may not be something you've thought much about at all. Satan and his demons are hell-bent on maligning God's character and doing so by mixing truth with error. Like a swirled ice cream cone, there is the chocolate of truth and the vanilla of lies. A counterfeit $20 bill is only effective if it looks identical to the real thing. You're only going to be deceived by something that's deceptive. The doctrines of demons are effective because they mix sound doctrine with deceptive, nice-sounding, warmly-worded distortions. Now, Satan doesn't ordinarily deceive people directly. I mean, you'd realize it. Usually, he uses his homies. 
they're there in the passage. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These are people who write books, who have YouTube channels, who preach sermons, who teach classes, claiming to hold the faith, yet intentionally, knowingly distorting it. There is no shortage of that in the world today. Folks who claim to be Christians, but by their commitment to certain doctrines reveal, they can in fact not be, even though they claim to be. False teaching typically comes through false teachers, verse 2 tells us. Demonic doctrines spread in the world and in the church through pastors, teachers, and authors whose consciences are seared. What does that mean? Friend, God has given you an, an internal barometer of right and wrong. Literally everyone has one, Christian or not, educated or uneducated, rich or poor. You're born with one. That conscience is the, the internal barometer of right and wrong. And you can either listen to it, that gentle nudge of something being good or bad. You can listen to it or you can ignore it. And when you ignore it, and you ignore it again and again and again and again, then just like a, a drug, it takes more and more of it to give you the same effect. And that conscience eventually can get so fried that it no longer works, that it's ineffective. This doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in days or weeks, it's months and years. And friend, if you're scared that that's, that that's you, that your conscience has become seared, then it hasn't because you wouldn't care. You would be so convinced of your posture as right and true that you would be unsensitive to even what I'm saying now. Those whose consciences are seared, who use a platform to proclaim doctrines they know not to be true, are among the most evil, demonically used people in the world. And it is a shame and a sham that that happens sometimes through people claiming the name Jesus. The word in the passage, insincerity, is down at its root, the word hypocrite. Hypocrites knowingly twist the truth to justify their own immorality. 
Think of the late apologist Ravi Zacharias as one example. He publicly claimed Jesus saved while he privately told women, you can serve God by performing sex acts on me to help me deal with the pressures of ministry. I think John Stott is again helpful. Here's another part of that commentary. The grim sequence of events in the career of false teachers has now been revealed. First, they turn a deaf ear to their conscience until it became cauterized. Next, they do not hesitate to become hypocritical liars. Why do you lie when your conscience is becoming seared? Because you want to keep doing the thing that initially you knew to be wrong. And, and so you lie. It's not that you're becoming convinced of some other doctrine. It's that you're distorting it in order to deal with what's happened to you internally. Next. Third. I'm sorry. Go back, would you? That was my bad. <laughs> Church on Mill. I don't know if it's possible to go back, Lena. Perfect. Thank you. Third. They thus expose themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Satan loves to work through people giving themselves to lies. Next. Finally, they led their listeners to abandon the faith. It's a perilous downward path from the deaf ear and the cauterized conscience to the deliberate lie, the deception of demons, and the destruction of others. Brothers and sisters, would you please pray for, in particular, your pastors, that this would not happen to us, because it could. Would you pray for your staff, that they would not become so caught up in the work of ministry that they miss the God of ministry? And would you pray for each other? that in the demands and pressures of life, we not allow our consciences to become seared. Now, the particular false teaching that spread in the Ephesian church, frankly to us, sounds absolutely crazy. And it is, but it wouldn't have sounded all that crazy to them. It's listed there in verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. This is what's called a form of asceticism. Asceticism demands that people refuse all forms or particular forms of pleasure and then teaches that by doing so, you inherently earn spiritual gain. In Ephesus, false teachers were likely proclaiming that sex, even within marriage and particular foods, were inherently evil. And so, if they wanted to be people who pleased God, if they wanted to walk with Him and be in good standing on high, then they must refuse marriage and very likely they must refuse meat. Now, there's nothing in principle, of course, wrong with being single or with being a vegetarian. 
There's all kinds of jokes we could make here. This isn't the right kind of sermon for them. But God may, in fact, even guide one's conscience toward. I have given you the gift of singleness that you might remain that way to serve me. And for whatever reason, it'd be better not to eat meat. These are things not right and wrong. These are things that are matters of conscience in which Christians can reach different conclusions. Am I supposed to get married or am I not? But the demand that everyone marry and eat meat or don't marry and don't eat meat is evil because it refuses pleasures that are in fact given to those that desire them. And it's a lie straight from the pit of hell to say that things that God made that are good, that are not distorted by the fall, must be rejected by all Christians. Asceticism, of course, is not a popular, prominent teaching in Tempe, Arizona. We couldn't be further from that idea. I imagine there's no one in the room who is tempted toward that. Instead, we are exposed to other lies. One example, because it's the most blatantly obvious one. God wants me to pursue whatever desires I might have because that's authenticity. And being true to myself is to step into the story God's writing on the canvas of creation. God savingly accepts me exactly how I am because God is love. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? There's a reason that's attractive. It tastes good, and it leaves you in your sin. It doesn't confront. It affirms whatever's present within. All the while, you're sipping down arsenic every time you believe it. According to this false doctrine, for example, if I have sexual urges for people of the same gender, then those desires must be good and they must be embraced because God made me this way. And yet, God's word couldn't be any clearer. For example, 1 Corinthians 6 says that those who habitually practice homosexuality cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Neither can those who commit heterosexual sexual sin repeatedly without repentance. False doctrine is a self-justification for an immorality already present. 
It's, it's a, I want to stay like this, so I'm going to find some way to twist it that I might remain there. Does that make sense? Is it really important? Be careful, brothers and sisters, who you allow to teach you spiritual realities. Make sure that you always have your nose, yourself, in your Bible. Make sure that you interpret the Scriptures in community, in, with others who help discern. Yes, that is, in fact, what it means. Friends, I recognize how heavy this is and that some of the ideas I'm talking about you may be hearing literally for the very first time. So I want to encourage you to talk this out with one another, to, to not let me take a baseball bat to you only. But by God's grace, that a hard passage could be marinated in our hearts in loving conversations with each other far beyond these 40 minutes. If you have big questions about it, any of the elders would love to sit and talk with you. Especially helpful would be to look at Romans 1 and 2, because Romans 1 and 2 describe this exact path and how to avoid it. Now, thankfully, there's a supernatural solution. There's a way out. We don't all have to go down that path. Amen? What moves us from a position of vulnerability to false teaching to more solid footing is not a change in circumstances, but a change in thinking. Verses 4 and 5 describe, they describe that reality by sharing with us truths that defeat the lies the Ephesian believers were hearing. And by understanding them in their context, we can see a model for finding truths that would speak to us to help us with the lies we might be tempted to believe. Essentially, what verses 4 and 5 are saying, if I read what a, 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 a paraphrase that I've attempted, genuine godliness. Let me give you the, the, the lie first. Here's what the Ephesians were hearing. Genuine godliness demands refusing all sex and all meat because Sex and meat are evil, and the denial of those things makes you right with God. Now, that's a lie. That's not true. How do we know that? Well, Paul says, go back literally to the very first page of your Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the story, you might jot a note down. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and read those stories in which there is a particular rhythm. God created things in a creative day, and then He ended by saying, this is good. God created sex. God created marriage. God created foods. 
and He gave them to us to be enjoyed in their proper context. The enjoyment of food in a non-gluttonous way and the pleasure of sex in a husband-wife relationship are good gifts from a good God. And so, to avoid apostasy by thinking God teaches us not to do them and then demanding everyone else do the same thing is, in fact, to commit the very thing you're trying to avoid. All of us can savor a great-tasting meal and that just be the end to itself. Or you can savor a great-tasting meal with what Paul calls, and he repeats it, thanksgiving. You can season that meal with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving, and literally the tasting of something good can round up in praise to God because it's a gift from a good God. Couples, You can have sex in such a way that you're using your spouse for your own end, or you can have sex in such a way that even in the moment, the experience is causing you to think about the kindness and goodness of God. Stay in the Scriptures. Listen to good preaching. Read good books. Be often with fellow Christians discussing the things of God. Submitting yourself to God, this is the supernatural solution. Demonic doctrines twist God's character and distort God's Word. That's what they're after. And therefore, we must reject demonic doctrines because they distort the character and Word of God. That's what Satan was after in Genesis chapter 3. And two, and that's what he's still after. If we don't, we leave ourselves susceptible to winding up at a place we never imagined we could. How does one avoid that heinous outcome? Let me give you what I hope would serve you well as I close. Give me a few more minutes three particular things to do. Number one, pay careful attention to your conscience. Your conscience is your internal moral compass. Some people's consciences can be calibrated too high. The the volume is turned all the way up and it's blaring and blasting your freedom in Christ. If that's you, read Romans 14 and talk out with a fellow brother or sister how to ask God to be turning it down that you might not be so internally vexed all the time. The Lord has given you peace. He wants you to walk in that peace. The rest of us, not like that, need to pay close attention when we feel temptation coming on and to pause and pray and take a step back. Small repetitive sins left unchecked only grow into bigger and bigger and bigger sins. A second strategy to avoid apostasy is to seek the daily renewal of your mind. 
Seek the daily renewal of your mind. Pouring in truths about who God is, what God has done, what God promises, what God commands. And doing so in such a way that you're begging God, don't let increased knowledge make me prideful, but rather increase my humility. This is a wonderful strategy. Be a frequent Bible user. And when you have questions, write them down and work them out with fellow church members so that your questions don't fester into doubts and those doubts don't grow into moments of a, I seek escape from those doubts by sinning. And finally, number three, express daily gratitude for God's good gifts. Express daily gratitude for God's good gifts. Brothers and sisters, your lives are full. Our church is full of God's gifts. Is life in this world hard? Yes. Do we suffer severely? Absolutely. And yet, do the heavens crack open and the beam of God's love bring us good things every day? Yes. So with thanksgiving, receive those gifts. Do more of that than bemoaning the hard things. And in so doing, you will help protect your own heart. The ultimate gift, of course, to be received and rejoiced in is the gift of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a set of principles. It's the scandalous news that Jesus died and rose again, that sinners might be reunited in Him. Is there anything we ought to be more thankful for than that? If you've never trusted Him today, I would turn to you and ask you even now, do you believe Jesus came and died and rose again? Do you believe you have need of His death taking your place and His life being given to you, then turn to Him even now. And there will be rejoicing immediately in heaven and as quickly as you tell us, which I hope will be as soon as I finally shut up, there will be rejoicing in the room as well. Let's pray. God, we ask you to use this word now to minister to us. We thank you that you give us not only happy, joyful, easy passages, but also ones that hit us like a two-by-four in the face. I ask that you'd help us to receive it in love because that's why you gave it. Grow us and mature us now together in Jesus' name, amen.